Well, let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God, would you send your spirit here? Would you speak through me to your people? And would the meditations of our hearts, Lord, and the words that I speak, would it all be pleasing to you in building up the body? We pray in this son's name. Amen. Now, our series for the next couple of weeks is entitled No Spectators. No Spectators. And so it got me wondering in terms of thinking about, now what are some of the reasons why people are spectators in the first place? What are some of the reasons why people are spectators in the first place? I thought about it, I searched on the internet, you know, and I came up with several reasons, all right? One of the first reasons is that here, I have nothing to offer. I'm not special, I don't have any special gifts. Others might say, you know, I'm not good enough. In the sense that, you want me to help out in the tech booth? Do you know how many knobs and sliders there are on the mixer itself? I'm going to mess up, all right? So I'm not good enough here. Others would say, no, I'm just too busy. Here, I've just said life is just too busy, too overwhelming. Others might say, I've been there, done that. And the work, yeah, wasn't that interesting, wasn't that meaningful. It was just busy work. Moreover, I didn't feel appreciated at all. Others might say, you know, what volunteer opportunity? I didn't know there was opportunities to volunteer, but we can correct that today, right? <laughs> so here, or others might say that nobody asked me to do that. Nobody extended a personal invitation for me to do that. So these are some of the reasons of the objections in terms of why people do not volunteer. But in the text that we are going to examine today, we will find answers to three objections. Answers to three objections. The objections would be, I have nothing to offer, I'm not good enough, or I'm too busy. And what we are going to do is that we are going to go through each of these objections and see what Scripture has to say. So let's take a look at the first one here. I have nothing to offer. And in the text we're going to look at today, in verse 7 to 10, Paul tells us that Christ has given spiritual gifts to each and every one of us. Christ has given spiritual gifts to each and every one of us. And it begins here with verses 7 to 10. I'm going to read it here. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions, and he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. But the first thing that we find out here is that Christ has given grace to each one of us. Christ has given a gift to each one of us. Notice here it says to each one of us. And notice that it is placed first here for emphasis. It's placed first in the sentence for emphasis here. Christ has given to each and every individual at least a gift. Meaning that here, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, If you have the Holy Spirit within you, then you have at least a spiritual gift. 
No Christian can say that they do not have a spiritual gift. In essence, you can't say, I have nothing to offer. But what has Christ given? What has Christ given? It says here that Christ has been given, that grace has been given to us. Now, the word for grace is charis. The word for spiritual gift is charisma. The two are very closely related. And spiritual gift does not mean anything more than a manifestation or a gift of grace. The word grace here then means the source of our spiritual gift. Because the next few verses on, Paul will then say that Christ has given gifts here. So the grace here is the source of a spiritual gift. And Paul uses grace here instead of spiritual gift to focus on the source of the spiritual gift that our spiritual gift ultimately comes from God, comes from Christ itself, that Christ has given each one of us. You, you, you. Christ has given each one of you grace, and this grace manifests itself as a spiritual gift. Now, it goes on to say that as Christ apportioned it, as Christ determined it, that means Christ determines the quality and the quantity of the gift that each one of us have. It is his prerogative to give as he sees fit. So Christ personally selected that gift just for you. Now, we all have received gifts from people who have given a lot of thought in terms of giving. They think about what we like, you know, that they think about what we might need, but, and then when we receive that gift that has been so, given so much thought, we really appreciate it. But here, in a much greater way, in a much higher degree, Christ exercised the great care in selecting the gift for us. The gift that's not only best for us, but that it is also best for the church. That's also best for the church. So consequently, there is no room for pride at all. If the gift that we have received is more spectacular or if it's more than others, there's no room for pride. At the same time, there's no room to be disgruntled if we think that we ought to have more gifts or we ought to have more spectacular gifts. Christ specifically picked up the right gift and the right amount of gift to give to you. Now, the implication of this, then, is that if it is Christ that determines the amount of gift, and the kind of gift to each one of us, this means then that there are a variety of gifts. There are a variety of gifts, and different people will have different gifts. Now here, this is a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd, because in the first couple of verses, in verse 1 to 6 itself, the whole focus has that Paul has been calling for is for the unity of the church. For the unity of the church. Now here there is a diversity, diversity of gifts. Different people getting different gifts and different amounts of gifts. Now, you might think that if you want to have unity, then you want to make sure that everybody gets exactly the same thing. Everybody gets exactly the same thing. I mean, how many of you have children? All right. Now, when you give gifts to your children, you know, in order not to be seen unfair, you have to give generally equal things, right? So let's say if you give one kid a smartphone, 
You can't give the other kid a dumb phone. Right? I mean, they'll start complaining. They'll say it is unfair. It is unfair. But here, the reason why that Christ gives us this diversity of gifts is that the purpose of these gifts here is not uniformity. The purpose of the gifts is not uniformity where everybody gets exactly the same gift and the same amount. But rather, the purpose of the gifts is unity. Everybody working together using their respective gifts for the same purpose. And the means of developing unity is to have this diversity of gifts. It teaches us that we need each other. We need to depend on each other. One person cannot do everything. There is no superman within the church except Christ itself. It teaches us that everybody is valuable. Everybody has a unique contribution to make. And if everybody has a unique contribution to make, if you are not using your gift, if you think that you have no gift to offer, then you're in essence robbing the church of your unique contribution. You are depriving the church of your unique contribution here. Everybody has a particular gift. Everybody has a particular role to play. So Christ here has given us gifts to each one of us. This is what Paul says. Now he then gives the scripture support. How do I know that Christ has given gifts to each one of us? He gives a scriptural support, and Paul here uses Psalm 68, verse 18. He uses it and he adapts it here. And the psalm reads this. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, in Psalm 68, it says that God, as the victorious king, will give gifts to his people as he ascends to his holy mountain. But Paul then now reads this psalm Christologically and applies it to Christ itself. He says here, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul interprets Psalm 68 Christologically in that Psalm 68 must be talking about Christ. Why is it talking about Christ? Now, the previous Psalm, Psalm 68, talks about God ascending. Talks about God ascending. But where is God? God is in the highest heaven. Where can he ascend to if he is in the highest heaven? So if the Psalm is talking about God ascending, then it must mean that he must first descend, right? And once he is descended, then he's able to ascend. Aha! Who is the God that descends and then ascends? It must be Christ, because Christ descended onto earth itself in his incarnation, and then he ascended back into heaven itself. So that Psalm 68, in essence, is effectively talking about Christ. Now, if this psalm is talking about Christ, then ultimately Christ is the victorious king that is able to give gifts to his people. 
Christ is the victorious king that's able to give gifts to his people. As the victorious king, Christ has given spiritual gifts to each and every one of us. The quality and the quantity of the gifts are given as Christ sees fit. So if you say that I have nothing to offer, remember that Christ has given each and every one of you a gift. Let us then use the gifts as God has given us, that Christ has given us. But then some of you say, you know that, I have a gift, but I'm not good enough. I have this gift, I'm not good enough. I don't know what to do with it. Paul then here tells us that Christ has given gifted leaders to be our coach. Christ has given gifted leaders to help us, train us to use our spiritual gift and to maximize it for the church. It reads here in this, in verse 11 to 12. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. For what? To equip his people, that's all of us, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up here. The first thing ultimately is that Christ has given gifted leaders. Christ himself gave the apostles. The apostles are those commissioned by Christ ultimately to proclaim his message and to establish the church. In the New Testament, it obviously included the church and included Paul here. And prophets are ultimately those who communicate a message from God that is appropriate to the situation that is pertinent to the church. Now, there is some debate here as to whether there are still present-day apostles and prophets. There's some debate to that. And if you belong to a church that's a little bit more Pentecostal, that's maybe a little bit more charismatic, they would, try, they would affirm that there are present-day apostles and prophets. But even if we accept that, even if we accept that here, we must also recognize that present-day apostles and prophets do not have the same authority as the original twelve and the original prophets. Moreover, we must also recognize that present-day apostles and prophets do not have a special link to God. For after all, we are the priesthood of believers. Nor must we understand that they have some kind of new revelation from God that only they know, because all the revelation that we need is given to us in Scripture, in the Bible itself. So there's some debate in terms of whether they are present-day apostles and prophets. But the list carries on. Christ has given to us evangelists, those who proclaim the gospel. He's given us pastors, those who shepherd his people. And he's given us teachers in terms of those who teach the word of God. But here, ultimately, what are, is the purpose of these gifted leaders? The purpose of these gifted leaders, ultimately, is to equip to train, to mend his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, we have coaches for everything. Coaches for everything, you know. If you want to get your finances in order, you hire a financial coach, right? If you want to get your life in order, you hire a life coach. If you have a chronic disease, you have a health coach. If difficulty sleeping, you hire a sleep coach, all right? But for us, for us who have spiritual gifts, we have coaches for our spiritual gifts. And these spiritual gifts are ultimately in terms of the gifted leaders that God has given to the church. 
Now, here I must remember that the gifted leaders are not meant to do the main task of ministry. Rather, their primary responsibility is what? To equip. It is to train. Train who? Train the members of the church to do the work. In that sense, they function as coaches that enable us to use our spiritual gifts. Now, how many of you are going to be watching Super Bowl later on? Most of you are all right. Now, when you're watching the Super Bowl, who's going to be on the field? The players, right? How about the coaches? Well, they're on the sidelines, all right? We, we don't want to watch them play. We don't want to watch them play. We want to watch the players play itself here. It's the players who step onto the fields and actually play the game. In the same way, the primary task of church life is to be carried out by the members of the church, not by the leaders within the church. Being part of the church is not a spectator sport. And we get it exactly wrong when we think that the pastors and the staff are the ones who should be on the field playing the game, and we, the members, are the ones that are cheering them on. All right, we get that exactly wrong. Rather, the members of the church should be the ones who primarily do the task of ministry, and the leaders and the staff are the ones who cheer us on. Some of you say, I'm not good enough, but Christ has given us coaches. It's the same thing, you know, that you all think that I like jazz music, so maybe Robbie gives me a saxophone. I think, wow, that's great. But, you know, I don't know how to play a saxophone. So that gift there is going to just sit in my closet, right? But now Robbie decides, I'm giving you a saxophone and I'm going to give you lessons to go along with it. Now, that's something. Not only the gift, but also the means to use the gift, all right? So in the same way here, Christ not only gives us the gifts, but he also gives us gifted leaders to be our coach so that we know how to use the gifts that he himself has given us. All right? Now comes to the next objection here. Objection here saying that I'm too busy. I don't have enough time. Now we are definitely busy. Here I'm picking up my children after, after school activities, attending their recitals, attending their plays, caring for aged parents, working multiple jobs at times too. We are busy. There's no doubt about it. But sometimes it is not just about a matter of time, but it is rather about priorities. It is not just only a matter of time, but about priorities itself. Unless we are convinced that what we are doing at church is important, we probably won't give something else up to help the church. Unless we are convinced that we have a good reason why we should give up our time and energy to serve the church, we wouldn't help out. So we need to know that what we are doing is truly significant. We need to know that what we are doing is going to make an impact. Otherwise, we will not give up time in order to do it. And Paul tells us here that the purpose of our gifts is of cosmic significance. Christ has given us a purpose of cosmic significance here. 
And I'm going to read it here in the verses here, that the purpose of our gifts is to build up the body. And we read it here, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants. They are tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ here. Our gifts are to help the church to grow. And there are two goals to this growth here. Two goals. The first one here is unity. It is unity here. Until we attain to unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity concerning the content of what our faith stands for. Unity concerning the content of what our faith stands for. If the understanding that ultimately Christ is going to bring unity and to unite all things under his headship. And then ultimately, the other aspect of this unity is unity concerning the knowledge of the Son. But not just head knowledge itself. It is also experiential knowledge. Because in a couple of verses earlier, at the end of chapter 3, Paul prays that what? That they would grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of God, love of Christ that we would know that which surpasses knowledge, that we would know that which cannot be fully known. And so our gifts here is to help us to grow and to build up until each and every one of us understands and knows and experiences the love of Christ. And then when we have each experienced the love of Christ, how Christ has died for each and every one of us, then we will have so much love for them too because we know that they are just as precious to God. We would also have love for them too. So here is the whole thing is the unity. The second purpose here is maturity. Maturity regarding what? Firstly, it's that we might be like Christ in every way. To become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And it's, or it's also said here that we will grow to become him in every respect here, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So one aspect of this maturity is that we are like Christ in every way. And the other second aspect of this maturity here is that we would not be like spiritual infants who are easily deceived. Ultimately, no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, scheming here. Now here, the theme of unity and maturity are intertwined. The maturity of every individual will lead to the unity of the church. And the unity of the church ultimately reflects the maturity of the church. So maturity and unity are intertwined. But I think here that the primary focus is actually on unity. The primary focus is on unity because the first six verses, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, focuses on unity. I mean, Paul after says he prays that here, to, he tells them to walk worthy of the calling, 
to maintain the unity that is given by the Spirit. And he then lists about seven ones. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all. And so the whole emphasis here, verse 6, has been on the unity of the church. And the gifts that Christ has given us is ultimately to build the unity of the church. The gifts that God has given us is ultimately to build the unity of the church. And here, what's so important about the unity of the church? It is the central theme in Ephesians. The unity is the central theme in Ephesians here. Because even in the first chapter, what is God's plan? What is God's will? God's will, Paul tells us, is to bring unity to all things in the heavens and on earth under Christ. In chapter 1, Paul tells us that God's plan for the cosmos is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ itself. You see here, when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, the world was thrown into chaos and disunity. Both humanity and the cosmos were alienated from God. They were separated from God. But God's plan of salvation is to reconcile humanity and the cosmos back to God. And God's plan of salvation is to unify all things under the headship of Christ. It's to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under the headship of Christ. You see, when Christ died on the cross, when Christ died on the cross, he began this work of uniting all things. Because in chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, it tells us that Christ has united humanity back to God. And the second part of chapter 2 in Ephesians tells us that Christ has united both Jews and Gentiles within the church. So this process of uniting all things under the headship of Christ has already begun. But it has not been completed yet. It has not been completed because we still see the evil spiritual beings and the demons not acknowledging the rule of God. So that even though the process of uniting all things under heaven has begun, it has not been completed. What is the role of the church in this interim? What is the purpose of the church in this interim? In chapter 3, Paul tells us here that his intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms here. Paul tells us that the church is God's instrument. And what is the purpose of the church? To make known the manifold wisdom of God. What wisdom are we talking about? It is the wisdom of God that is inherent in God's plan to unite all things under the heavens. So unite all things under the heavens, under the headship of Christ itself. That is the wisdom of God that we are to make known. 
And who do we make known to? Who are we to make it known to? The heavenly authorities, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, both the good and the bad spiritual powers that are in the heavens. How do we make known the wisdom of God, this wisdom of God? We make known the wisdom of God by just existing as a united church. We make known, we proclaim the wisdom of God by just existing as a united church. Because when the church is united, when everybody is working together under the headship of Christ, we testify to the reality that God's plan of bringing all things into unity, of uniting all things under heaven itself, is at work. When the church functions as a united church, we testify to the reality that God's plan is at work. And that ultimately, by, telling the, by being a united church, we tell the spiritual powers, the evil spiritual powers, that their days of rebellion are limited. We tell the spiritual powers that their days of rebellion are limited. We ring their death knell because we affirm that God's plan of bringing unity to all things is at work and it will come to a completion one day. But let's say we take the flip side of it. What if the church is not united? What if the church is not united? What if the church is bickering? Just like Clayton said, bickering about the color of the carpet, bickering about whether we should have dark rows or medium rows. By the way, I like light rows. But what if the church does all that? All right, bickering, being disunited. The spiritual powers are looking and say, and they'll say, and they'll laugh at God. You say that your plan of reuniting all things that are at work. Look at your own people. They are fighting among themselves. They are bickering. If that is your plan, it is foolish. But here, you see here, the church here has been invited. They have been asked by God to play a role. The church has been given a role to participate in God's plan of bringing into unity all things itself here. And here, it is a glorious role. It is a role that has of cosmic significance here. The unity of the church is essential. And this unity is possible only when everyone exercises the gift that God has given them to build up the church. And the church ultimately attains maturity and unity. This whole thing is that the spiritual powers are looking at us and seeing how we relate to one another. And that when we relate to one another in unity and love, we testify to them that God's plan is at work. Have you ever thought about that? That the spiritual powers are watching you all, seeing the reality? Is this really part of the body of Christ? That is an awesome responsibility. You know, you say that I'm too busy, and our lives are busy. The lives of, stu of students are busy. I have two teenage daughters, and I recognize that their lives are busy here. But, you know, to the students, what if your teacher told you 
that your contribution will make a significant impact to your school. You know, whether it's Deerfield High, whether it's Stevenson, GBN, GBS, whatever. What if your teacher told you that what you're doing would make a significant contribution to your school? I'm sure most of you all would volunteer. Most of you all would volunteer. But what if I told you that your contribution was not only making an impact for the world, but more than that, it was making an impact for the cosmos? Wouldn't that give you more impetus? Wouldn't give you more impetus that maybe I need to reorganize my priorities somehow a little bit differently and maybe see whether I can carve out a little bit of time to serve the church and to be part of God's plan, to be part of God's plan, to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God that ultimately Christ is bringing unity to all things, things on earth and things in heaven itself. You see, God has invited us to be participants in his plan. Participants in his plan of uniting all things under the headship of Christ. He has given a purpose He's given us purpose that is of cosmic significance. And this purpose can only be accomplished when everyone, you and I, both use the gifts that God has given us to build up the church to attain maturity and unity. So what we have taken a look here today here is that Christ has given spiritual gifts to each one of us. Christ has given gifted leaders to be our coach and Christ has given us a purpose of cosmic significance. In essence here, Paul answers three objections why we might not want to serve. And this then leads to the big idea here that ultimately, let us each use the gift that God has given us to build up the church. Let us each use the gift that God has given us to build up the church here. Everybody must play their part. Everybody must use their gift. And in order to bring this idea here across, Paul uses the imagery of a church as a body. You know, last week, Pastor Tim talked about the imagery of the church as a family. But this week here, we have the imagery of the church as a body. A body here, and as you see that in verse 16, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every spiritual ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And within this body here, every part and every member is essential. I mean, here, you see it, it's the whole, not just one part of the body, the whole. It is together. It is every supporting ligament, each part doing its work here. It shows the necessity of each member utilizing the gift that Christ has given each one of you. In a body, every part is important. The eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We need each other. We need to use the gifts of each other in order to build up the church to maturity and unity. Every member of the body has to do their part in order for the body to function well. Now, someone cheeky may say, well, I'm just an appendix. Totally not necessary, right? <laughs> now, it was previously thought that the appendix is, not, is useless, all right? A vestigial part, unnecessary. But you know what? 
Research has just found out that the appendix is important and that it acts as a safe house storing good bacteria that lives in the gut. So even if you think you have an appendix, they are still needed. All right? The imagery of the church here is a body where everybody has to play their part. The imagery of the church is definitely not a cruise ship, all right, where you pay your dues and you go on a cruise expecting to be entertained. No, it is the imagery of the church as a body. And here I just want to give you a chance to take a look at, the, at this thing here, right? This thing here in terms of volunteer opportunities. Take it out here and take a look here. You know, there are opportunities to help out in the AV tech sound. I know there are a lot of knobs, there are a lot of sliders there, but hey, Robbie has a good team and they're willing to train you, all right? Opportunities for musical worship. You could say that I don't sing, I don't play instrument, but there are opportunities for you to be ushers or greeters here. All of us could put on a smile and to greet others. If you are savvy with HTML, with graphics, there's a need to do website design. If you are a handyman, like Peter, all right, you know, helping out with facilities itself, if you are just good with, you know, just talking to people, opportunities for outreach. If you are good with relating to children, there's kids' ministries. If you are, you know, you're just more of an introvert, there are prayer opportunities too, prayer ministries here. If you are the brave and you know how to relate to high school students, hey, there are student ministries there, all right? And if you, if you can type, hey, there are office ministries here available to you. So take a look at this and uh, find out whether there's anything that strikes your fancy. And when you sign it up, it's, you're not making a commitment to, that we're going to force you to do anything, but rather it's an opportunity for us to contact you and then to give you a little bit more information about it. And at the end of the service itself, there will be a basket over there on that right-hand side by John LaForge. There will also be a basket right at the back, all right? in the services counter, and also one in the guest services counter, so you could drop off this form here. So I encourage you all to do that here, to build the bulletin in some ways, because ultimately, we are not a performance church. We are a family church, and everybody is essential. All right? Everybody is essential here. Let me just give you one final thought here. All right? One final thought. Now, in his inaugural speech in 1961, JFK said these immortal words, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. If I was to re-paraphrase and to paraphrase JFK, it may be this, Ask not what your church can do for you. Rather, ask what you can do for the church. Let us each use the gift that God has given us to build up the church. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are the victorious king and that you have called us to be participants in your plan to proclaim your wisdom 
that you are uniting all things under the headship of Christ. Would you then, Lord, impress that so much upon us such that we have a burning desire to use the gifts that you have given to us. We pray your distress, son's name. Amen.